Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hi, and good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Today we are presenting part one of two interviews with Michelle Maharbiz and Daniel Cohen. Michelle is an associate professor with the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at UC Berkeley and a co-director of the Berkeley Sensor and Actuator Center. His current research interests include building micro and nano interfaces to cells and organisms and exploring bio-derived fabrication methods. Daniel Cohen received his Ph.D. from the joint UC Berkeley and UCSF Department of Bioengineering program in 2013. His PhD advisor was Michelle Maharbis. Together they have been working on the FRONTS project, an NSF EFRI grant. EFRI stands for Emerging Frontiers in Research and Innovation. FRONTS is the acronym for Flexible, Resorbable, Organic, and Nanomaterial Therapeutic Systems. In part one of our interview, we discuss how they came to the challenge of measuring and understanding the so-called wound field. Here's part one. Michelle Maharbiz and Daniel Cohn, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. Thanks. How was it that electrical fields generated by wounds was discovered? So I think Daniel should take this one because he's the, he's the group historian on this topic. In fact, he gave us a little dissertation during this thesis talk. Back in the day when electricity was sort of still a parlor trick, there was a lot of work being done to try to figure out where it was coming from. There was a lot of mysticism associated with it, and this is in the mid to late 1700s. And so Galvani is a name most people have heard. Galvanism was a term coined for his work, and what he found was all the work with frog legs. So he used to dissect frogs and could show that if you had dissimilar metals in contact with different parts of the muscle and the nerves, the legs would twitch, and it amputated frog legs. So his conclusion was that electricity had something to do with life, and that living things were made alive by having this spark of life. And this was a really super controversial idea because for a long time there had been a philosophical debate raging about vitalism versus mechanism, which is the idea that all living things are special because of some intrinsic vital force versus the idea that physical principles explain life. So the vitalists really liked this idea that electricity is the spark that makes living things special. There's a lot of dispute about this, but eventually Volta, who was right after him and who the Volta is named after, showed that it was really just the movement of ions and things in salt solutions. But it was a little too late, and the mystical aspect of this had come along. So the problem then was that this idea prevailed into the early 1800s. And so Galvani's nephew, Aldini, started doing these experiments in England where he was given permission to take executed criminals and basically play with the corpses. And he was able to create a corpse that would go like this and raise an arm or wink an eye at an audience. And this was the idea of the reanimated corpse. So people were having a lot of fun with this. But it wasn't clear that it wasn't mystical. And so this is the long answer to the question, but that's the backdrop where the science starts to come in. So the first thing is Frankenstein gets published. 
out of this. And everybody's getting into the whole vitalism idea at this point. And Frankenstein was written as a part of a horror story competition. It was almost a joke. But the funny thing is Frankenstein, well, how would you say Frankenstein, the monster, came to life? Lightning. Lightning. That's, the lightning it wasn't it. a Hollywood fabrication. It, everyone assumed that, but Mary Shelley never wrote anything about lightning or electricity. She, in fact, wrote that the technology was too dangerous to describe in text for the average person. But in her preface, she explains that the whole origin of this idea, and this is where the answer to the question comes from, was that she had writer's block when she was writing the story. And she overheard her husband, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron having an argument about work done by Erasmus Darwin. And Erasmus Darwin was a big natural philosopher, a scientist at the time, who was a big vitalist. So he's really into the idea of the spark of life and also this idea of spontaneous generation, that where does life come from? When you have a compost heap, fruit flies appear. There was an idea that decomposing garbage produced life, and that was part of spontaneous generation. And he did a lot of experiments where he'd seal things like wet flour into a bell jar and show that organisms came out in a sealed environment, and they just didn't know about microorganisms and things like that. So he did a famous experiment where he dehydrated some species called vermicelli, or sorry, I made the mistake I'm about to talk about, vorticella, which is a little organism. And when he added water again, they came back to life. Now, Lord Byron and Percy Shelley didn't understand any of this, and the conversation that Mary Shelley eavesdropped on was one where they said that Erasmus Darwin had taken vermicelli pasta, put it inside a <laughs> bell jar, sealed it, and through some magic of his own, allowed it to twitch. So he had essentially given life to pasta. Now, Mary Shelley wrote that she didn't believe any of this was actually really what happened, but this idea of animating the inanimate gave her the idea for Frankenstein. Then she writes the one line that links it to electricity, which is, and if any technology would have done this, it would probably have been galvanism, which is this idea of applying electricity to something. And so that's where this whole idea of life and electricity came from. By that point, the scientists had finally caught up with all the mysticism and started to do more serious experiments. And that's when Carlo Mattucci in 1830-something found that when you cut yourself, there's some sort of electrical signal at the injury source. And that was his main contribution. That was called the wound current or the wound field. And then after him was the guy who really formalized the whole thing, which was Dubois-Raymond, who was a German electrophysiologist who found that if you have any sort of injury, he could actually measure a current flowing at the site of the injury. He could show that that changed over time. He cut his own thumb and measured the current flow. And they didn't have an explanation for why it happened, but they knew that it had something to do with the electrochemistry there. This was the birth of electrophysiology. And then he went off and did all these things with action potentials and neurons, which is why almost no one's heard about this injury side and the fact that electricity is everywhere in the body normally. And it's not mystical. It's electrochemical. We're much more familiar with the neural stuff. And this other stuff on the wound side sort of languished until maybe the late 1900s because it was rare it was weird it wasn't clearly important and a lot of the players involved were so caught up in all sorts of other things that we tend to forget about this so that was the whole long-winded history of where the wound field came from but it's a good story it is a good story yeah you are listening to spectrum on kalx berkeley our guests are michael maharbez and daniel cohen They're both bioengineers. In the next segment, they talk about the genesis of the Fronts Project. Michelle, when you approached the NSF for a grant for this idea, Mm -hmm. how long had you been thinking about it, the smart bandage idea? How far downstream were you with the idea? We had been 
toying with the idea for quite some time, and there's a bit of background to this as well. So my group, amongst other things, builds flexible electrode systems, you can call them, for neuroscience and, and neuroengineering. And most of those systems are intended to record electrical signals across many different points, across many electrodes, usually on or in the brain. And so we had this basic technology lying around. This is sort of a competence that the group has had for quite a while. The other thing that was beginning to intrigue us, and I have to credit Daniel for sort of beginning the discussions and, and kind of pushing this along in the early years. So Daniel and I have like a two-man club of sitting around thinking up of crazy things. And one of the things that Daniel had been interested in was the idea of resorbing or having sort of some of the materials disappear uh, as they do their job in the body. And this is a notion that's become very popular recently, actually, over the last couple of years in, in the community, in the engineering community in general. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to another question I had, which yeah. is the difference between resorption and absorption. Absorption might imply that you're taking the components up and they're becoming part of the body. Resorption is really just a very strange semantic term that means something like the body's breaking it down or it's breaking down in some form. And it's not really the same as that material winding up elsewhere in your tissues. It may just get excreted or it may go somewhere else. So really, we use it when we don't really know what's going on. Yeah. We had been looking at this general area. And then I think the last piece of the puzzle... I think in our minds, looking at the extant literature, the idea that we could take meaningful electrical data from a wound began to really interest us. And so the two parts of this really are, one, can you use portable, resorbable systems, something like a bandage, you know, something that could, that isn't going to require you to walk around with a handcart? Can you use systems like this to measure electrical signals that are relevant to wounds? And then the other question is, if you can do that, and if you have, you know, you learn about this, and by the way, we're not the first people to try to do this. There there are a number of people that have been measuring electrical signals in the wounds, as Daniel said, for quite some time. If you can do this, is there a value to trying to control or modulate that electrical information or those fields or those currents in the wound? Is there a therapeutic value? Perhaps is there a scientific value? Is there something you can learn about the way the body works or tissue works? Both of those are open questions, and you know we can delve into each of those, but those are really kind of how we think about them separately a little bit. The flip side is that when we do a lot of this kind of design for medical things, you will want to know what's already happening and how the body handles its own injuries. And this field doesn't just arise passively. So they had no way of knowing this when it was first discovered. But when you get this electric field, there is a navigational effect for incoming cells to the injury. So it actually helps guide things in like a lighthouse to the wound site. And so a lot of my PhD work was showing how you can steer cells with a controlled electric field. So you can really herd them like sheep based on how the electric field goes. And that means that that was the source of this bio-inspired part of it, which is We're not adding something that's not already there. We're taking something that's already there and we're modulating it to maybe improve. So evolutionary tools are things that the body has that just happen to work well enough for us to survive as a species. It doesn't mean it's optimized. And this field tends to go away very quickly. Nobody really knows whether extending the duration of the field would improve the healing or if we could shape it. Maybe you can control how scar tissue forms and things like that. So there's this idea of looking at how the body already heals itself and then figuring out where you might start to control it. And electricity is one of the areas that's really been underutilized in medical technology for this sort of thing. Yeah, I think for those of your audience that are sort of tech junkies, if you will, the resurgence of this type of thing currently, I think, arises because we've gotten very good at building very low power, very small electronics. 
And there's been a whole slew of new polymers and sort of new flexible substrates that are also conductive or can hold conductors. And so those two things together rekindled interest in trying to build gadgets that sit on the skin or in the NSF case, we're not only doing the skin, but we're trying to develop a tool long term for surgeons to do something inside the body. So it'd be nice to be able to leave something that will help you heal, but then will be resorbed so you don't have to reopen, right? Spectrum is a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley. Our guests are Michelle Maharbiz and Daniel Cohen of UC Berkeley. They want to build a smart bandage for wounds. In the next segment, they talk about the focus of their research. So in your approach to the NSF, was there some sort of focus? There's a technological focus and an application focus. The technological focus for the NSF was to point out that there was a lot of fundamental engineering science that had to be done to produce the type of systems that could do this. You know, we're looking at resorbable batteries, right, resorbable power supplies, how you would build these systems, what polymers you'd use, what the rates of resorption. There's a lot of just fundamental stuff going on if you posit that there'll be value to these kind of things. That's one focus. The other focus, I would say application-wise, we're looking at two things. The most ambitious is that you could develop systems that a surgeon could use for internal wounds. So the dream is a surgeon is, for example, let's say you have to resect a part of your intestine. You then have to fuse the two parts that are left behind. There are methods for doing this, and there's still research going on into what we know, the clinical methodology for this. It would be very useful if you could leave behind something that could tell you, if nothing else, the state of how that is healing, but would then go away because you're certainly not going to go back and open somebody's abdomen to take out a little piece of sensor that was doing something to intestine, right? That would be uh, not a good idea. And so that idea, that dream that you could leave behind very small, very thin things that could take data, if nothing else, take data, is really what was one of the applications. The other one is surface wounds. There are lots of surface wounds caused by illness. For example, advanced diabetes produces a lot of problems in the extremities and wounds that are chronic that don't heal very well. There's just a lot of ongoing interest in surface wounds and not just the technologies for understanding how they may be healing, but in things that maybe could help heal those surface wounds. Those are our foci, if you will. I think of them as there are specific things we want to show we can do with our partners at UCSF, but there's also an entire wealth of engineering science that has to be done to build the fundamental And so the NSF was okay with that broad uh, portfolio of research? Well, is so, that sort of what their <clears throat> mandate is, to go broad like that? Because that seems like you're, you're doing stuff that's... Well, I think their main concern here is that they specifically discourage healthcare applications as NIH can fund those. But the difference is that what engineers have found for a long time now is that we don't actually know how to engineer biology. So any technology that brings quantification and an engineering mindset to solving this, like tissue engineering, growing organs, we don't have a lot of engineering for that. But if we start to monitor everything we can, the chemical signals, mechanical, electrical, we build up a set of stimulus and response type rules. We understand how to perturb these systems. So in the same way that you might build a bridge according to a manual of how you build a bridge and how you look at the loads in it and the ways of building a bridge, we might someday build organs. So if that's the pitch, that's much more fundamental science. And that's really where it has a medical application. But we can't do it without science and engineering principles that just don't exist right now. There's two points I should mention. First of all, the key is this work is really looking at the fundamentals of the engineering and and the science. We certainly have our foot in the clinical side because I think it informs some of this, right, so that what you're doing is relevant. 
so that someday you could go down that path. Right. So you're not in isolation. Yeah, because if you're not really, assuming that you're headed in this great right. direction, exactly, and, and then you the find clinical it's completely guys worthless yeah. clinically, right? Yeah. So, other, so we're very clear. Yeah. And, and the second thing is that um, we're funded under a slightly broader grant mechanism than usual. So we have what's called an NSF EFRI. I think this is Emerging Frontiers in Research and Innovation. I think is what it is. And these are sort of headline or marquee type. Thing. So we're very lucky that we were awarded one of these. And so I think the NSF is really looking for this broad, far-reaching, hard-hitting uh, effort. I think this is a good point to mention that this project is really a big collaboration between a number of us. And I'd like to mention who they are because some of the material work is done by very talented people in the department. Anna Arias and Vivek Subramanian are two professors in the EECS department. And they're very well known for flexible printed systems and, and the materials that go into them. And we work also with Shuval Roy at UCSF and Mike Harrison. And Mike is a sort of brilliant pediatric surgeon, and Shuval Roy is well-known for the technologies he builds at the interface with clinical need. It's really the fact that all these people came together that we're building all of these tools. Spectrum is a science and technology show on KALX Berkeley. We are talking with Michelle Maharbiz and Daniel Cohen. They are researching the electrical field that is generated by wounds in mammals. Their hope is to collect meaningful data from sensors embedded in bandages placed on wounds. How have you approached interpreting and analyzing the electrical field data that you're getting out of the wounds in mammals? Right now, we're being very cautious. We've started a first few experiments with rodents over the last six months. What we've built is a, is a series of systems. You can think of them as insulators with lots of little electrodes all over them, an array of, of little electrodes. They're on order of a centimeter or less in terms of, you can think of a postage stamp, maybe a bit smaller. We have different varieties of them. Some are stiff. Some are very flexible. You can think of them as contact lenses or transparency paper, that kind of thing. And these arrays are connected to electrical sensing equipment. There's a miniaturized little board that runs everything and sends data to a box, and all this data is collected. And what we're currently looking at is a variety of different signals on both open wounds, so if I, for example, cut the skin, and on pressure wounds. Pressure wounds are something that people that don't see clinics very often or hospitals aren't familiar with, but in fact are a huge, huge problem in, in hospitals right now. Then we lay these arrays over the tissue, and we measure a variety of different things. One thing we measure, what's known as electrical impedance between different points on the array. And you can think of electrical impedance as how much resistance to an electric current that tissue might produce. It's not a steady current, it's a time-varying current. So we sort of wiggle the current on and off, on and off, negative, positive, negative, sinusoidally. And how quickly that current responds and how much of it there is, that allows us to calculate the impedance. And there's a lot you can tell from that. You can tell whether things are very wet and conductive. You can tell whether the tissue is tight-knit so that it doesn't let things through. Uh, oily, you can tell whether there might be changes in, from one tissue to another. You can infer things about what tissues there might be underneath. The other thing we measure is actually electric potential. When the wounds are immediately after they're made, we try to look at what kind of potentials arise and how they're changing. So th- right now, that's in terms of measurement, that's really what we're looking at. And, and another thing I should point out is we do these measurements as a function of frequency across a wide range of frequency spectrum up to hundreds of kilohertz. And that's sort of the rapidity with which we wiggle the signal because different components in the tissue will respond differently at different wiggle frequencies. Once we have that complete plot, we can look at the difference between them and try to see whether we can 
build models that tell us, oh, well, if you see this type of distribution, it, there's an intact skin, for example. So the dream in this case, you put your Band-Aid on and your doctor checks his, his or her iPhone every 12 to 24 hours and just gets a different little map of how it's working without ever having to remove the dressing. How are you doing in understanding what those signals mean in terms of healing? Uh, we just had a meeting. They're doing great. They've basically collected a great deal of data on the latest set of wounds they did, and, and now they're, in fact, proposing models and seeing how the data fits. They're fitting their models to the data to try to use those fits as ways of discriminating different types of tissues. So we're in the middle of it right now. I couldn't tell you much. We're still putting all that story together for publication. So. And are you able to leverage the work that other people are doing? And... Oh, absolutely. Sure. Well, I mean, you always do that. Like I said, okay. nothing is in a vacuum, right? Right. So, uh, Absolutely. We follow the literature and, and we, we build off of what other people have found and try to add our own contributions. That's, that's mm -hmm. how it works. I mean, these ideas came from discoveries <laughs> from the 1800s and then later on in the 1980s onwards, a bunch of really good developmental biologists have really pioneered a lot of this and gone down as far as showing that even in an embryo, you can detect changes in electrical potential at the surface of the embryo where limbs will form and things like that. So there's a huge amount of stuff out there that gave us the idea for the original thing, but we're barely scratching the surface. We're technologists, right? We're engineers, so... Yeah, part pick of it one thing and figure it out. Yeah. So the idea of trying to analyze the wound field data, do you have to solve that problem first before you can take on anything else, like trying to instigate the healing? Yes. Yeah, I would say so. You would never put this in the body without knowing... Knowing that it really a lot works. More. And, yeah, but on yeah. the surface, it's a different healing mechanism than, say, a fracture, but... It's still the idea that we don't necessarily know what the cause and effect is yet. So we have to show that getting a field out relates to some state that we can say the wound is in and that we can intelligently put a field back in that actually helps. So we need some metric of success. Yeah. And without that metric, that number that says the wound is doing better or worse, we're not confident saying that our stimulation is helping. So that's why getting this data first is really important. The parameter space is fairly large, right? The number of things you could possibly change. Some of the effects are very subtle. And so just willy-nilly going in there and saying, oh, I applied some field, you know, likely not going to be very useful. And then there's another subtlety, which is that there are probably clinical contexts in which this is of limited utility, even if it works. And so that is uh, something we spend a lot of time thinking about. So let me give you an example. Let's say I told you I can make that little cut on your knee heal 5% faster with a $15 Band-Aid. I'm pretty sure you're not going to buy a $15 Band-Aid, <laughs> except maybe once for the novelty of it. You know, ooh, it tickles. But there are contexts where, and Daniel alluded to this earlier, for example, scar formation is a big deal, right? How a scar forms and the trajectory of the wound healing for certain load-bearing wounds is a really big deal, right? Think of your abdomen if you had to go in there like and cut hernia. those muscles, a hernia. Uh, and there are many things like this. And so if, and I want to be very careful to say if, if it was found that electrical interventions can affect that type of healing in a way that produces a useful outcome, right? Much better scar development so that your load-bearing properties are maybe not as good as the original, but a lot better than just letting it sit around with the dressing. That'll be a very big deal. But that's a very big space, right? And that's why we split it into this in vivo's work on monitoring the surface and wound properties and in vitro work where we have cells and tissues in culture where we can directly stimulate them in culture in a very controlled environment and watch exactly how they respond to different shapes of fields, types of fields, and come up with a way of describing how they behave that doesn't require the in vivo work. So we have two parallel tracks right now, and hopefully we can put them together.
Be sure to catch part two of this interview with Michelle Maharbis and Daniel Cohen on the next Spectrum in two weeks. In that interview, Michelle and Daniel talk about the limitations of sensors on or in humans, the ethics of sensing and inputs into living systems, and moving research discoveries into startup companies. Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes University. We've created a simple link to get you there. The link is tinyurl.com slash spectrum. We hope you can get out to a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Renee Rao and Rick Karneski present The Calendar. Nerd Night East Bay's first show of 2014 will be happening January 27th. The show features three great speakers. First, Nerd Night San Francisco alum Bradley Wojtek will guide you through how scientists organize and present some of the vast amounts of data available today. Then, the Chabot Space Center's Benjamin Bures will discuss the most likely places to find life, off of planet Earth, of course. Finally, KQED's Lisa Alaferis will tell you what you need to know about Obamacare. The show will be held this Monday, the 27th, at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland. Doors open at 7. To get tickets for the $8 event, go to East Bay Nerd Night, spelled N-I-T-E, dot com. This February 2nd, the California Academy of Sciences will host a lecture on the Ice Age fauna of the Bay Area. There's a good chance that wherever you happen to be sitting or standing is a spot where Colombian mammoths, giant sloths, dire wolves, saber-toothed cats, and other megafauna also roam during the Ice Age. Learn about the real giants of San Francisco and how you can embark upon a local journey to see evidence of these extraordinary extinct animals. The lecture will be held at the Academy on February 2nd from 9.45 a.m. to 12 p.m. Tickets are available online at calacademy.org. February's East Bay Science Cafe will be on Wednesday the 5th from 7 to 9 p.m. at Cafe Valparaiso, 1403 Solano, in Albany. Dr. Harry Green will discuss his book, Tracks and Shadows, Field Biology as Art. Green, a herpetologist at Cornell, blends personal memoir with natural history. He'll discuss the nuts and bolts of field research and teaching, how he sees science aiding in conservation and appreciation of nature, as well as give many tales about his favorite subject, snakes. For more information about this free event, visit the cafe's page on the website of the Berkeley Natural History Museum at bnhm.berkeley.edu slash about slash sciencecafe.php. A feature of Spectrum is to present news stories we find interesting. Rick Karneski and Renee Rao present our news. In a letter published in January 15th's Nature, James Usherwood, a locomotor biomechanicist at the Royal Veterinary College at the University of London and colleagues, explain why birds migrate in V-shaped formations. The team fitted several northern bald ibises with GPS trackers and accelerometers to measure wing movement. They found that the birds position themselves in optimum positions that agree with their aerodynamic models. Further, the birds flap in phase with one another when in such formations. Instead of the anti-phase flapping, they perform when following immediately behind each other. This in-phase flapping maximizes lift of the flock and is surprising, as the team noted that aerodynamic accomplishments were previously not thought possible for birds, 
because of the complex flight dynamics and sensory feedback that would be required to perform such a feat. The tenuous place in the human family tree of Artipithecus remittis, a 4.4 million year old African primate, has recently been solidified. Fossil remains of Artipithecus remittis, or Artie as the species is known, were first discovered by UC Berkeley professor Tim White and his team in Ethiopia in the 1990s, and have proven a consternation to classify ever since. Artie displays an unusual mixture of human and ape traits. Fossils reveal small, human-like teeth, an upper pelvis adapted to bipedal motion, but a disproportionately small brain and grasping large toes best suited for climbing trees. Scientists split over whether Artie was our distant relative, essentially an ape that retained a few human features from a long-ago common ancestor, or our close cousin, possibly even an ancestor. Recently, Tim White, among many others, co-authored a paper with Arizona State University's William Kimball, in which they successfully linked the Artie to Australopithecus, and thereby to humans. The team examined the bases of Artie's skulls and found surprising similarities to human and Australopithecine skulls, indicating that though the Artie brain may have been small, it was far more similar to a hominid's than an ape's. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.